0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A piece of marijuana-infused candy made him do it. That's been the claim from the start about why a Denver man killed his wife four years ago. Richard Kirk is now serving 30 years behind bars, and for the first time, he is talking about this crime, which raised serious safety questions about edible marijuana. Reporter Lori-Jane Gleehaw investigated the case and these broader safety questions for Rocky Mountain PBS, and welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You reported on this murder when it happened in 2014, and you had reached out to Richard Kirk repeatedly since then. I think it's fair to say his claims about why he killed his wife came as a shock to the community and were met with lots of skepticism. Is that what moved you to try to talk with him?
1: Well, you know, I think this case was so unique. In 2014, I was a national correspondent for Al Jazeera America, living in Washington, D.C., and marijuana sort of became my beat when Colorado legalized recreational marijuana. And when this case happened, it was totally shocking, I think just in general because of the murder itself, but because it was timed so closely and connected to this edible, because that was his claim. And I always wanted to know, what was he thinking? What, what, what did he experience? What did he know? And since he had never spoken out, I wanted to reach out to him. And when I had the opportunity to come here to Colorado, last year when he was sentenced, I thought, okay, this is another chance. I'm going to try to talk to him. He denied my request over and over again, I finally sent a letter. He agreed to meet. I went drove three hours to Bent County Correctional Facility, where he was at the time. I spoke to him about what I wanted to learn and and then he agreed to do an interview.
0: What do you think it was that you said either in the letter or that first meeting that swayed him to talk to you?
1: Um, I think he's had some time to reflect now um, that's one of the things he told me he's had some time to think about what has happened it's been Four years, obviously, since this crime happened. Um, And I think, you know, the goal of my program is to look at what have we learned about edibles over the last several years and what can other states learn from us?
0: Right. This isn't just prurient trying to talk to someone who uh, is in prison for killing his wife, but to understand something deeper about this case, if it tells us anything. What were your impressions of Kirk when you spoke with him?
1: It was really interesting. The first time I had seen him was on a mugshot, and he looked really uh, intimidating and strong and tough. And when I went to the prison, he was standing in this room. I didn't realize it was him at first. And, you know, he was more timid than I thought. He didn't look confident and tough like he did in this Mugshot I had seen, um, and he was really preoccupied with wanting to show me pictures of his family. He pulled out a book. Um,
0: Including his wife?
1: Yeah. He wanted to, he felt like the only way that the public knew him or that I had gotten to know him was through the media reports, which was true. And he felt like it was important to show I still care about my family and that oh. these are other things about me beyond just this crime.
0: And this larger project, I'll underscore, was really about getting perspective into his claims, whether or not ingesting marijuana can, in some cases, lead to violence. I understand that even today, Colorado continues to evaluate and update marijuana regulations, edible regulations.
1: Yeah, even this week, there was a press release that was put out by the state talking about uh, always kind of improving, enhancing some of the new regulations. And even this summer, they developed another work group to look at all the different ways that can help Make sure we're constantly improving, making sure this is the safest, healthiest way for people to consume what is now available. And I know that early
0: on, there were all kinds of discussions and regulations about how to package edibles in particular, how to label them, to Mm -hmm. distinguish them from other types of food. Uh, So thank you, Laurie Jane, for giving us this preview.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And uh, your interview with Richard Kirk. The research his crime has prompted uh, and how Colorado regulates edibles is in a podcast from Rocky Mountain PBS, which we're going to share today on Colorado Matters. So here again is Laurie Jane Gleehaw and reporter Lee Patterson with Insight. It's the investigative podcast from Rocky Mountain PBS.
2: This is a story about something horrific that happened in Denver four years ago. Do you remember why you went to go get the gun? A man killed his wife and blamed it on marijuana.
3: This is a feeling I've never felt before. I went, wait a minute, something's wrong. I was completely freaked out immediately.
2: It left Coloradans wondering, what can go wrong if you eat a marijuana edible?
3: They're seeing
4: things, they're hearing things. They're actually very, very afraid and they're very, very nervous and paranoid.
2: In this podcast, we'll hear the killer's side of the story from prison for the first time in an exclusive interview with Rocky Mountain PBS. We'll explore what we've learned about marijuana edibles since then and how Colorado's regulations have evolved.
5: Colorado was the first mover on this issue as a result. I think other states can benefit from our experiences. Some of what you'll hear in this
2: podcast is disturbing and might not be appropriate for small kids. So, Lori Jane, just start by telling me what happened here in Colorado back in January of 2014. There's a big news story. Colorado's opened recreational marijuana stores.
4: For Colorado's new retail pot market, today lines are long and sales brisk. January
1: 1st, 2014, people could go and buy marijuana legally in Colorado. Smokeable, drinkable,
4: and from this bakery... The
1: whole world was looking at this. It was an important news story. And I was a reporter and I covered this. I did tons of stories on marijuana. It sort of became my beat. Everybody was watching what was going to go right, what was going wrong. How was this even going to work?
2: Lori Jane Gleeha is an investigative reporter with Rocky Mountain PBS. Not long after dispensaries opened their doors. A couple really serious things happened and it got people's attention. There was a man, Richard
1: Kirk, who bought an edible and then went home and shot his wife in the head. This was horrific, just on on its face. But what complicated things was this happened right after recreational marijuana was legalized. So there were lots of questions about, ooh, are, are these safe? Um, and I really wanted to know what was going on. What happened to this guy? Was it something that in that edible that made him do this? Or was this a murder that was going to happen anyway? From the beginning, his defense was that the edible made him do it. And I wanted to know, was that actually possible? Could his story be true? I wanted to go ask the experts. I wanted to find out what research had been done. On top of that, Colorado has come a long way. It has been four years. So what has Colorado done to address this, to prevent incidents like this from happening? And what can other states learn from Colorado?
2: It's a blazing hot day. Lori Jane and I have been driving for a couple of hours, south of Denver, and then east. It's a lot of barbed wire. Yep, it's definitely the prison. We finally get to the Bent County Correctional Facility. We walk up to the front gate.
1: Yes, we're here from Rocky Mountain PBS for an interview with um, inmate Richard Kirk. Okay, and, so we're meeting uh, Richard Kirk. Okay, go ahead and come in. I'm Richard sorry.
4: Richard Kirk, the Denver man accused of killing his wife while high on pot. It was a
1: crime was that April.
2: stunned our community, and today
4: 50-year-old Richard Kirk will be sentenced April 7th for killing his wife, Christine.
2: As Christine she Kirk. She was 44 years old. A working mom, mother of three. Friends said she lived for her kids. As for her husband, Richard Kirk. Uh,
1: now he's serving several decades in prison.
2: All right, so we walk down a long hallway. It's a cinder block hallway. There are fluorescent lights. And we go into um, a a visiting room, and Richard Kirk is sitting there all by himself. And I had
1: seen his picture, you know, in the mugshot, where he looked strong and intimidating and tough. and, And I see this guy there, and he didn't look any of those things. He had this goatee that was... Growing down off his chin, he looked a lot thinner or smaller than his picture. And at first, I, I didn't realize it was him. And then when I then I realized, I mean, it was very quickly, I realized,
2: but I was like, oh, that's that's Richard Kirk. He was just a regular guy. Just a regular guy. But what happened back in 2014 was anything but regular. So let's start by going back to that point in time, back to 2014. Richard Kirk had eaten a marijuana edible and things had spiraled out of control.
1: Do you remember why you went to go get the gun?
3: I remember sitting on the couch and Chris was in the living room, talking on the phone over away from us. Andrew had come in there.
2: Andrew, his youngest son.
3: For some reason I was I was asking him about numbers. I I think I was trying to get back to who I am. I think that I was trying to remember stuff of who I was before I was feeling the way that I was feeling. I was terrified. Finally, I said, Andrew, what is our address? What is our address? And he said, Daddy, I, don't, I can't remember. He said, Dad, why are you asking me? I said, Andrew just tell me our address and he and he finally got his composure he said dad it's twenty-one, twelve, two-one, one-two, and something when he said that number something in me just I just lost myself I didn't know where I was I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know what the threat was I didn't know if I was the threat I didn't know
2: Fast forward to the day we drive down to interview Richard Kirk at the prison. He's now been locked up for years.
1: He's repeatedly declined interviews from reporters, from the jail cell, um, from where he is in prison. And finally, I wrote him a letter. He
2: agreed to meet me. One of the first things Richard Kirk does is he opens up um, a composition notebook, some sort of notebook, and takes out family photos.
3: Show me your favorite one. Okay. Okay. I have two favorites. Is that okay? Yeah. Why is this one one yeah. of your favorites? It's a photo of my wife and me. We're standing on a bridge, and there's a creek or a river running underneath it. It it shows the trees and the beauty of nature, the sky, the b- beautiful blue sky. And You both have big smiles on your face. We both have huge smiles on our face. We look as happy as we've ever been in that photo.
1: Show me your other favorite.
3: I think... I think of just my family, my immediate family. This is my favorite.
1: So it's got you with your arm around Chris. Yes. Your three boys with giant smiles. Where are you in this picture?
3: We're at a Denver Nuggets game. We did things together like that all the time. My boys always say, Dad, because we would get promo tickets from work and stuff sometimes. When are you going to get some more tickets? It's ab season.
1: What do you miss the most being in here?
3: I miss contact. I miss... (laughs) I miss the loving contact of my family, the embraces of my my wife, the scent of clean pillows. I miss, um, I miss that I have absolutely no communication with my three sons.
2: And he was quite emotional.
1: Yeah, I mean sobbing at times i felt like he was bawling when he was talking about his family and feeling bad about what he did physically i could see him like pulling at his skin like grabbing it like
2: kneading yeah, his skin
1: yeah it was just sort of he was having a, a, a like a physical reaction to some of the questions i was asking and some of the things that he was recounting
2: The interview at the prison lasts for two and a half hours. Richard Kirk explains what happened leading up to the night he killed his wife in a lot of detail. So just to summarize some of it, Richard Kirk had been struggling with pain pills for years. He says he had been taking Vicodin for back pain and he was eventually diagnosed with severe arthritis in his back. He became addicted. He tried to quit on and off. And then in the spring of 2014... Richard Kirk says he became kind of interested in marijuana for pain management. So one day he's out picking up milk, driving home.
3: Got in the truck, started driving home north on Colorado Boulevard, coming home with the milks. I see out of the corner of my eye where there's a store, a a medical marijuana store that's been established that I've really never even noticed before. But this time, as I drove by, it had a banner flapping in the wind, and I noticed it said recreational marijuana. And I turned, I made a U-turn, and I went and I went to that um, medical slash recreational marijuana store.
2: Richard Kirk says he doesn't have a medical marijuana card. You need a doctor's stamp of approval in order to get one of these state-issued cards, and he just doesn't want to be in the state system. So, Richard Kirk goes into the recreational side of the store.
3: I went in, started talking to the guy. He was a younger guy. He had, like, kind of spikes through his ears. I was like, this doesn't feel right. But he seemed knowledgeable, way more knowledgeable than I was. I didn't want to smoke. I didn't want to smell like smoke was on me. So I wasn't even considering anything to buy that was uh, a smoke. I I wanted to try an edible. And... Uh, I was leaning towards an edible, I should say. I, or And he suggested, he said, well, this is for you. If you've got kids and you don't want to just be lethargic, then this would work better for you.
2: An edible. An orange, ginger-flavored candy with 100 milligrams of THC. That's the stuff in marijuana that makes you high. Now, there's no record of the conversation between Richard Kirk and the person at the dispensary who helped him. But Richard Kirk says he was told to eat about a quarter of the 100 milligram candy he bought.
3: So I pulled in the driveway and right when I pulled in the driveway, that's when I opened it and I looked at it and I go, okay, a quarter. I marked it with my finger. now what I thought was a quarter and I bit it off from the piece. Tasted good. Tastes like orange ginger snap, but it had a little bit of a marijuana taste to it. Not much, but as I chewed it, I kind of tasted it more. When it went away, it really melted pretty quickly, and, and I swallowed it. I wasn't feeling anything. I wasn't feeling high. I wasn't feeling like uh, what normal effects that I thought you would get from eating marijuana or sm- from smoking marijuana. From what I remember smoking it, you take a puff, and in about four seconds, you kind of go, wow, I feel that, I'm good, I don't want any more, you know? You, you could regulate it, and you knew about it. This had nothing like that.
2: So he waits a while and then bites off a bit more.
3: And as I was putting it into my mouth and I was chewing it a little bit, I all of a sudden, almost instantaneously, just felt like this is a feeling I've never felt before. And as I started to swallow it, I went, wait a minute. Something's wrong to myself. I said, that other stuff is starting to work and I don't know... It's not working the way I want it. I was completely freaked out immediately.
2: Something that strikes me in his retelling so far is that this story isn't so unusual. There are a lot of stories about someone eating an edible, not feeling anything, so they eat more and then they freak out and just have an all-around bad experience. There's a story about the New York Times reporter. She came to Denver to do a piece on marijuana. She ate an edible and ended up in her hotel room in the fetal position for eight hours. But Richard Kirk's freak out quickly gets worse, and then his story takes a serious turn.
3: It's not a feeling that I've ever had before. It was like I was in a different place. It was, And I'm laying there, and it just all seems so surreal to me what they're and doing. And Chris it's came almost down and said, come on, Richard, come out of there. You're scaring the boys. I'm like, But well, then I'm laying on the floor. I feel cold like I'm on concrete, and I feel like people are stomping boots on me. I remember, I remember being step- out on our deck. I remember jumping through my youngest son's window, trying to go through the screen when there's a door right outside. I was standing room. there thinking, what am I doing out here? Why am I out here? I'm all alone out here. Yeah. I remember her going, Richard, why now. are you out there? How come you went out this way? What are you doing? And I, and I
1: instead of, I it, I... Do you remember why you went to go get the gun?
3: All I remember is being in the bedroom, me fumbling with the safe, getting the gun out, getting the gun out of the safe, going back towards the living room. I remember all that.
2: During this whole thing, Christine Kirk is on the phone with 911 pleading for help. During that 13-minute call, she says that her husband is hallucinating and that he's asking her to get the gun and to shoot him.
3: And I've tried ever since, but I cannot remember anything that happened after I entered the living room. I can't remember. I can't remember if I, if Chris came to me or if I went to her. I don't know how it happened. I still have absolutely no recollection of what happened.
2: What happens, in the end, is that Richard Kirk gets the gun out of the safe and shoots his wife in the head. He murders her with their three young sons at home. This is how Richard Kirk remembers and portrays the events. A family man who just completely lost control after eating an edible. Laurie Jane, Christine Kirk's family didn't want to do a recorded interview, but Tell me a little bit about what you've learned about other versions or other sides of Richard Kirk.
1: So, what came up a lot is that he has a short temper or a short fuse. Um, that he often has to be right. He can't. You can. He, you can never win an argument with him or have a constructive co- argument. Some people referred to him as a bully. They, they had financial problems in their marriage. There was also reports that. Chris, his wife, had confided in a coworker that maybe she was going to leave him, that maybe she wasn't in love with him anymore and that was looking forward to possibly having a divorce. Things weren't the best in their marriage before Chris was killed. It was rocky it was rocky.
2: Lori Jane confronted Richard Kirk about a lot of this, the short temper, the rocky marriage. And he said, yeah, a lot of that was true. But he still blamed his actions on the edible
1: how much do you think the marijuana edible impacted your decision to kill your wife?
3: There's no there is absolutely no other situation that I can think of where I would do that. For me I know it's a 100% that the, the marijuana and me ingesting it is the reason that I did it. I know without Any doubt that if I did not eat that marijuana, my wife and family would still be together today. I know that with a certainty.
2: This defense was never tested because there was never a trial. Richard Kirk ultimately took a plea deal, in part, so that his sons wouldn't have to testify against him during a trial. Richard Kirk pled guilty and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Christine Kirk's family sued the two companies that manufactured and sold the edible. Both companies eventually settled with the family, but publicly rejected any responsibility for Richard Kirk's actions. So is Richard Kirk a guy who killed his wife and there just happened to be marijuana present? Or did the marijuana make him do it? Or is it just something in between? Lori Jane... Tell me a little bit about what you wanted to know.
1: We wanted to know if what he said, that the edible made him do it, was actually a possibility. So we wanted to look at what research has been done since this incident happened that might help open the door and shed some light on these issues. Could an edible impact somebody's brain that intensely that they would do something this violent?
2: Data and information on the public health impacts of marijuana is an emerging body of research. That's partially because legal marijuana just hasn't been around for very long. Colorado voted to legalize recreational marijuana in 2012 and open pot shops in January of 2014. And then there's this. At the federal level, marijuana is illegal, so there isn't much funding for research. In fact, the federal government classifies marijuana as a Schedule I drug, meaning it has no medical use and has a high potential for abuse. Other drugs like heroin, LSD and ecstasy are all in this category. Here in Colorado, the state is working on trying to understand these public health impacts. Since 2015, the state's public health department has put $9 million towards studies related to medical marijuana and a little over $2 million towards studies related to the public health effects of recreational marijuana, including a new study examining the types of marijuana products associated with hospital visits. So we're going to go meet with Dr. Andrew Monti. He's an expert in emergency medicine and toxicology. Dr. Andrew Monti is working on that last study, marijuana products associated with hospital visits. Lori Jane and I meet him in the emergency department at UC Health near Denver. Lori. Nice
4: to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Day, yeah. Dr. Monti has
2: done a lot of research related to marijuana-related illnesses, 10 studies over the past decade. And a couple of years ago, Richard Kirk's lawyers hired him to consult on the case regarding THC levels and the capacity of THC to cause hallucinations. Now, he's focusing on marijuana edibles with brand new data on how they factor into ER visits. First, a few big picture numbers from this study.
4: So overall, um, we over the last five years, we've seen about 2,600 cannabis attributable visits in this emergency department.
2: Around 500 visits a year.
4: So really what that boils down to is really one or two visits per day.
2: Because people smoke too much or had a bad reaction to an edible or something like that. And that's not really many visits in the scheme of things. For example, this emergency department gets 100,000 visits per year. Dr. Monti says that the most common marijuana-related problem people are having when they come in... ...why people
4: come into this emergency department actually is this cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome.
2: Cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Severe vomiting associated with heavy marijuana use. The second most common reason is psychiatric anxiety, panic attacks. We'll come back to that. But first, one of the key findings in Dr. Monti's new study is about what people smoked or ate, that sent them to the hospital. Now, here's what's important to know. THC. Again, that's the stuff that makes you high. In Colorado, there's a lot more THC sold in flower form, so something like a joint, than in edible form.
4: Yet, we are seeing about 268 times more edible visits when we control for the the product sales of THC in flowers versus edibles.
2: Meaning that although there's a lot more THC being sold in flower form, it's edibles that are sending people to the ER in an outsized way. In 2014, the state established something called the Retail Marijuana Public Health Advisory Committee. Fifteen experts, including Dr. Andrew Monte, to review current scientific literature on the public health impacts of marijuana. The most recent report recommends more studies, especially related to edibles, and more education. And it points out that much of the current public health research looks at an association, but doesn't prove that marijuana alone caused any particular health effect. The report does spell out an important acute effect that THC has on some users. Psychotic symptoms, hallucinations, paranoia, delusions.
4: They're seeing things, they're hearing things, they're actually very, very afraid. Their heart is racing. Uh, They get sweaty. And, and they're very, very nervous and paranoid.
2: Dr. Monti's data set shows that this kind of freak out is more common in people who eat edibles than who smoke.
4: Clearly, edibles seem to have a more severe toxicity than inhaled agents. And it seems that much of this is actually psychiatric in nature. The other thing is exacerbation of underlying um, chronic psychiatric conditions, right? So what will happen is, is somebody that that has underlying schizophrenia starts to smoke more pot, and they actually have more hallucinations.
2: And doctors still don't know exactly why edibles trigger psychiatric problems in some people and not others. What do you know about how common violent incidents? are related to marijuana edibles. Does that data exist?
1: Not really, because there's not a consistent way that police departments track this.
2: But there have been a few high-profile incidents involving edibles.
1: In addition to the Richard Kirk case, there was the case of the college student who had come down to get a marijuana edible, ate way more than he should have. says that he started acting hostile and then
5: leapt to his death from the fourth floor of this Holiday Inn here in Denver. Then there was
1: a case of a boy that had come into town. I think he was from Oklahoma. Had come in town on a ski trip.
0: In the hours before he took his own life, Luke Goodman's family says the 23-year-old overdosed on edible pot.
1: So recently, and in doing some research about this, I found this other case of this young guy. Tonight, the trashed cabin and federal charges after violence breaks out in the air. Again, same story, ate too many in a short span of time, got on the plane and then became ballistic.
4: Allegedly tried to open the exit door in first class, a flight attendant stepping in and the man allegedly punching her twice in the face.
2: So there are really only a few of these headline-grabbing violent incidents that have been associated with edibles that we know about anyway. And in these handful of cases, it hasn't been proven that the edible was the one and only cause. While Dr. Andrew Monte feels that edibles do make sense for medical marijuana patients because the high lasts for so long and takes a while to kick in, taking edibles just for fun?
4: If people are taking this to get high, most people don't want to get high three hours from the time they take this. And so I would suggest to you that the kinetics of of edible formulations are inconsistent with what most users are looking for when they actually want to get high.
1: Would you make a recommendation to eliminate edibles as a recreational source here in Colorado?
4: I think that the edible agents, when we talk about a risk-benefit profile edible agents for the recreational purpose um, just don't pass the smell test to me
0: all right when we come back what colorado has done and continues to do to regulate edible marijuana we visit a pot shop to get first-hand perspective on what's happening this is colorado matters from cpr news
4: Midterm elections have come and gone. And in Colorado, it was a blue avalanche. One so strong that you could wonder if this is even a purple state anymore. I disagree. I think we're still going to be purple. To be honest, it's a blunt comment, a very direct comment on the Trump presidency. I'm Sam Brash, and for this final week of our election series, Purplish, White Democrats Dominated Colorado, and what that says about the future of the state. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Richard Kirk of Denver claims he killed his wife, Chris, because he'd eaten a piece of marijuana-infused candy. That claim was never proven or disproven in court because Kirk confessed to the murder. But it raises serious safety questions, and it's one reason the state has re-examined its approach to the regulation of marijuana edibles. Let's continue now with Insight, the investigative podcast from Rocky Mountain PBS. Here again, Lee Batterson and Lori Jane Glehaw.
6: A
2: lot has changed in the marijuana industry since Richard Kirk killed his wife in 2014. Now, recreational marijuana sales are legal in nine states, and Colorado has put regulations in place to make edibles safer to use and easier to understand.
1: After looking at this Richard Kirk story and all this, this unusual story and these ideas of what might happen, we wanted to know what kind of precautions have been taken when it comes to helping people understand how to take an edible in a safe way and the regulations that Colorado's put into effect. So we wanted to go to this dispensary. We went to this place called Simply Pure. Very
7: nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, you guys want to come on back? Sure.
2: We meet the general manager, a guy named Brian Nowak. He takes us into the dispensary, which basically looks like a cool coffee shop. Gray walls, distressed wood, Edison bulbs. Brian Nowak pulls out a couple of different types of edibles. Squares of chocolate. Um, you know, so each each of those little squares represents a 10, ten milligrams of THC.
7: Correct. It's a state-recommended dose.
2: The rules on yep. dosing and packaging uh, have been changing so I mean over that's... the years. Brian Nowak also takes out a box of chocolate truffles. Dark brown with swirls of shiny gold and deep pink. These are beautiful.
7: Yeah, those truffles are definitely beautiful. He turns one over. And they got the little THC logo stamped on the back of them. So it's very clear what those are.
2: A diamond shape around the letters THC in all caps with an exclamation point stamped on the plain side of the pretty candy.
1: It was incredible to see how tiny and edible could be and still marked with a THC symbol and this was a way to help make sure that people know what you're consuming is got THC in it it's not just a regular brownie it's not just a regular chocolate because these edibles do look exactly like regular brownies regular chocolates regular whatever
2: this universal symbol rule the rule that requires this THC stamp was part of a bundle of marijuana regs that took effect in 2016 The word candy was no longer allowed on marijuana packaging. And labels could no longer include anything about health benefits. Now, there are all sorts of rules on the books. Rules about childproof packaging, rules about which pesticides can be used in growing marijuana. And now, thanks to another new regulation put in place last year, you can't make edibles that look like kids' candy. Animals, fruits, cartoons, the kind of stuff that a kid might mistake for candy. When someone comes in and, like, wants to buy an edible, what do you say to them to make sure they understand how to consume it correctly?
7: Well, first I definitely start off by seeing if they have any past experiences, good or bad. Um, and then, you know, I guess assuming that they don't know or are unfamiliar with their dose, we always start and recommend people do a half to a quarter of actually what the state recommended dose is.
2: The state recommended dose, which again is 10 milligrams, why do you start off with such a protective recommendation?
7: Because of the negative stigma, especially in regards to edibles and you know, with with smoking or vaping, people are going to kind of feel or gauge um, that intoxication rather quickly. Um, whereas with an edible, you can definitely over-ingest 10 times what you're going to need and not feel it for an hour and then it's all going to come up and, and hit you. So Because of that, I like to make sure that people are just really, really cautious, because I don't want anybody to have a negative experience, um, especially somebody that is unfamiliar with cannabis.
2: Colorado is learning, and its regulations are evolving, as the state's marijuana industry grows. Since 2014, Colorado dispensaries have done more than $5 billion in marijuana sales, Last year, the state collected $250 million in taxes and fees. And according to new data from the state, 15% of adults in Colorado use marijuana, and more and more of them are drinking and eating cannabis products. Rachel Gillette has been part
5: of the industry since the early days. She's a lawyer based in Denver. I started my own practice in 2010 primarily focusing on representing marijuana businesses. I'll never forget this. I called my constitutional law professor from the airport, and I was like, I'm going to open up my own firm, and I'm going to practice marijuana law. And she said, you're going to be disbarred. (laughs) Rachel
2: Gillette now heads up the Cannabis Law Group for a national law firm called Greenspoon Martyr. And she's on the board of directors of Colorado Normal, which is a national pro-marijuana advocacy group. Back in the day, she says the industry was different.
5: So what did it look like? It was less regulated. (laughs) There wasn't as strict standards in place. There weren't as strict labeling requirements. We didn't instantly develop an educational campaign to educate people on safe consumption of edibles. So it's evolved. And that's what happens when you're starting from a clean slate, essentially.
1: I wanted to know what Colorado has learned, what mistakes we've made and we've improved on so that other states can learn from us. It's taken that many years to get to that point. Do you think other states need to take that much time to get their system in in place and implemented, or
2: is
5: it okay to just kind of... No, they don't. You know why? Because we've already done it in Colorado. So all they need to do is read our rule book
2: which is over 900 pages
5: long. And see those types of issues that they should be addressing. <laughs> Do they have to start over? No. We've already done it for them. Could they make it better? Probably. Colorado was the first mover on this issue. And we've, as a result, um, I think other states can benefit from our experiences.
2: Rachel Gillette says that both Massachusetts and California have structured their rules like Colorado's. As for the health concerns and some of the high-profile incidents related to edibles, like the case of Richard Kirk...
5: These are unfortunate circumstances, which is why I emphasize the importance of educating people on this product. However, drunk drivers kill people every day, too. I mean, those are tragic circumstances. The bottom line is cannabis is being consumed all over the United States. It's being consumed in Kansas, where it's completely illegal. And it's being consumed for medical reasons and for for recreational reasons. And I think that's that's a good goal, is to take it out of the back alleys and bring it into the light and try to figure out how to regulate it appropriately. Lori Jane, I, w- I want to go
2: back to your interview with Richard Kirk briefly here to listen to something that he had to say about Colorado's regulations back in 2014.
3: I would say that there was a complete failure on the, on the part of the, the state, the, the, the companies that open up in the regulations, the process in which they made at that time the marijuana, there wasn't enough, enough wasn't enough oversight. My hand pulled the trigger. I'm the one that shot and killed the person that I want to be with for the rest of my life. I was able to do that in front of my three children who I always vowed to protect and to to to, to, to watch over. I would say that the dangers are there. I would say that they're real. I would say that they're not made known as much as they should be, Right, even right now.
2: So, Lori Jane, if we... Consider all of the regulatory changes that have happened in Colorado since Richard Kirk killed his wife back in 2014. Would these rules have helped him back then? As in, if if he knew what we've learned since, could there have been a different outcome?
1: If you believe everything he's saying, that the edible made him do it, then it's possible that these new rules would have impacted him had he only taken an exact dose, Uh, had he known specifically that an edible, which he claims he didn't, could have been absorbed into his system in a different way than smoking marijuana. All of these things might have impacted what happened that night. There are many people that say they believe him. There are many people that say they don't. Um, We're never going to know exactly all of the details. And as a reporter, I always take this View. I've said this so many times to different people. There's not just two sides to a story. In life, there's not just two sides. There's a perspective. And that's what we do as journalists is look at the different perspectives. We're not here to say edibles are good. We're not here to say edibles are bad. Our main goal is to make sure people are able to make more informed decisions, to use facts, to use data and to understand the different perspectives of different people from the industry, from the state, from the government, from the consumer to the convicted killer.
0: We've been listening to Insight. Reporter Lee Patterson worked in collaboration with Rocky Mountain PBS and investigative correspondent Laurie Jane Gleeha. We'll have links to Laurie Jane's reporter's notebook about this story later today at CPR.org. The television version of the exclusive interview with Richard Kirk premieres tomorrow night on Rocky Mountain PBS. Dagny Tucker noticed something ironic. She has spent a career focused on world peace and sustainability, and she would go to big global conferences aimed at making the world a better place, only
6: to see that... Everyone showed up with a paper cup. Uh, Sustainability conferences where the trash cans were overflowing with paper cups.
0: Tucker learned in the U.S. alone, we use 58 billion paper cups a year. But so what? I mean, paper cups are recyclable.
6: Paper cups technically could be recycled, but we don't have the facilities. They all are lined with a plastic, a thin plastic lining. That small plastic lining really exacerbates the situation that we're looking at in oceans and with soil pollution and the fact that we all have plastic in our bodies and our tap water and everywhere else. The
0: answer's simple, right? People just need to bring reusable cups.
6: Wouldn't that be wonderful? It would be wonderful. In Boulder, in a survey of Boulder Cafes taken a year ago, less than 10 people a day come in with their own cup. That's out of about 1,000 customers a day. People are on the go. They're already carrying a lot of stuff. They're commuting. We know that people's cups get grimy. You forget about it. It's in the car. It gets hot. It's stinky.
0: So Tucker has what she thinks is a solution. Her company, Vessel, is like a bike share for coffee cups. And it launches today in Boulder at four coffee shops around town.
6: Essentially, we provide stainless steel cups to cafes for their customers to check out instead of taking a paper plastic cup It's free of charge. They leave with that cup and then they have five days to drop it off anywhere around town at one of our public drop kiosks or participating locations.
0: Then the cups get washed and, of course, reused. The cafe saves money on disposable cups. Vessel captures some of that savings. And landfills get a little lighter. Customers have to register to take part with a form of payment just in case they decide to hold on to the stainless steel cup permanently.
6: We give very kind, friendly reminders that your precious vessel is due back. And if there's no response, no plea for forgiveness then eventually it will be a $15 charge.
0: That is Dagny Tucker, founder of Vessel, a sort of bike share for coffee cups, which launches today in Boulder.
6: One
5: more cup of coffee before I go To the valley below
0: Earlier this month, we talked about new efforts to preserve sites related to Latino history in Colorado. Our guest pointed out that at Denver's West High School, there's no marker for an important chapter of history. In 1969, students walked out of class. They were protesting what they saw as racist treatment by school staff. There were eventually clashes with police, tear gas. Well, Maria Martinez-Lopez is the assistant principal of West Early College. It's 6th through 12th grade, located on the West High campus. Martinez-Lopez says her father, Emmanuel Martinez, was arrested in the 1969 blowout between Chicano students and police. Every year, she says, West Early College teaches students about what happened almost 50 years ago.
8: We have made it part of our programming for the first weeks of school to not only acknowledge but actually teach all incoming 6th graders and ninth graders. We also train or educate all new staff that are coming to teach or provide some type of support within our school so that they understand where they are and the tremendous amount of culture and rich history that we have.
0: Now, while there's no plaque documenting that history, there is a small mural of a student protest. Martinez Lopez says she's working to get a larger remembrance soon.
8: We are excited that this is going to be the 50th anniversary of the event and are pulling our small community together to commemorate the event with the surrounding artists of the West Side, to also include my father. Emanuel Martinez as somewhat of a, a commemoration and an acknowledgement of the work that was done.
0: We always welcome your feedback, and we often share it in Loud and Clear. You can find all the ways to get in touch with us at cpr.org slash connect. All right, we are taping our third annual Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza later this month on stage in front of a live audience. And this year, we held a contest for a chance to perform in the program. We heard from lots of Colorado musicians and will announce the winner Friday. Until then, we are sharing some of our other favorite entries all this week. Here is the Silver Bell's Flute Quartet with a performance of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, arranged by Diana Link. The Silver Bells Flute Quartet, and we'll announce the winner of our contest Friday. You can get tickets to the big event we tape November 28th at the Newman Center in Denver. Tickets are at CPR.org. I'd love to see you in the audience, and you can watch radio in the making. Again, CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.